0: In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN friend, Heather Scruton. Come along as Michael Dexter and Holly Briggs talk with Heather about her passion for maternal fetal transport and improving communication with each other. It's going to be a wild conversational ride. This episode is called Maternal Health and OB Transport. Oh, baby.
1: And welcome to the BCN and Friends podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. But most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, and sometimes serious, but always valuable. I'm Holly Briggs, a professional development specialist at BCN and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Dexter, Director of Professional Development at BCN. Hi, Michael.
0: Hello, Holly.
1: It's good to have you with us today. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have Heather Scruton. Heather is an OB transport nurse whose passion for maternal fetal medicine and transport has taken her from Kansas to Washington, D.C., and next she'll have the chance to see her at BCN's Learn Live in Dallas in May of 2023. Michael, could you please introduce us to our BCN and friend, Heather?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Heather is a transport nurse who graduated from the University of Kansas with her nursing degree in 1997 and went back for her master's degree in nursing and business administration from the University of Mary in 2014. She has over 25 years of experience with high-risk OB patients. Heather currently serves as the director of outreach for the critical care transport team at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Her transport team completes approximately 6,000 transports a year, specializing in neonatal, pediatric, maternal, and OB services. Heather has spoken nationally on the topics of fetal medicine, innovative program design and implementation, communication in healthcare, and maternal-fetal transport. She is an advocate with the federal lawmakers, educating lawmakers on the topics of FMLA, the opioid epidemic response, and rising national maternal, maternal mortality rates. Heather serves on the Kansas Maternal Mortality Review Board and the Legislative Coordinator for the Association of Women's Health, Obstetric, and Neonatal Nurses. Heather, welcome to the BCN Friends podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thank
2: you. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Well, you are doing a lot. Um, In between all of that stuff, you're occasionally breathing, I'm assuming, but could you tell us a little bit more about what drew you specifically into transport nursing? I know, you know, we talked about the opioid epidemic, we talk about maternal health, and that's obviously not just um, specific to transport nursing, but what drew you into transport nursing?
2: I found in my career, most of the changes that happen kind of happen accidentally, or it feels like it. Um, I just get interested in something and follow that path. And then lo and behold, I end up doing it for a living. Um, And as was the case with transport, we were at Children's Mercy and I had helped open the fetal health center, which is a center that delivers moms who have fetal complications. So there's an advantage to being in a high level pediatric center when you have your baby so that you're essentially delivering in the NICU. Um, And it was great fun, a a little scary. It was a second of its kind in the United States. Uh, but something I hadn't done before, so it kept me interested. And this kind of center, you know, we do 200 deliveries a year because it's a very specific patient, um, is not very high volume. It's just high risk. So the nurses that we had had to be experienced, had to have experience in high-risk critical care obstetric nursing. Um, When we started hearing more about the maternal mortality numbers, we started talking to our critical care transport team, already a leader in that industry. Um, We're the second busiest specialty transport service in the United States. And began having discussions about how we might be able to help that maternal mortality rate reduction. Um, Because we already have a critical care neonatal nurse on the team. We already have a critical care respiratory therapist. Um, And really all we needed was to add a critical care obstetric nurse, which we had. So in 2016, we began plans for expanding our services into maternal patients. Um, Professional organizations like um, SMFM or the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialists or ACOG, uh, which is the OBGYN professional organization, had recommended that all hospitals, regardless of size, have a transfer plan in place for maternal patients. And so that started the push to look at how we were moving these moms. We know it's better for the baby if we can move mom and baby to a higher level center rather than wait for her to deliver and then move baby. Um, But we weren't doing a very good job of moving her. Local EMS is not a huge fan of Pregnant patients, they don't like them, they're nervous, they have no way of monitoring them. So we developed our own program and um, it was the first of its kind in our region. We were thrilled with the success of it because in the first year we anticipated maybe 20 maternal deliveries and we hit 50 that year. And the service continues to grow. We have additional maternal fetal uh, transport services in the region now and it's all filling a great need. As I was helping to do this, the critical care transport leadership reached out to me and said, Hey, would you consider coming to work with us and expanding all of our programs? And again, I didn't mean to go that direction. I certainly never anticipated that I would in my 40s be, you know, stuffing myself in a flight suit and doing maternal transports. But that's what's great about nursing is that the unexpected happens. So I did make the switch and I've been with the team since 2018. And I love it. Absolutely love flight nursing um, and have learned so much.
1: It sounds like you just kind of came upon an opportunity and instead of backing away from it, you embraced it and have found something that fills you up and is a is a new found passion. And that's that's super exciting in nursing to know that you may have been doing it a little bit. You may have some experience in nursing, good, bad, ugly sometimes. And yet you can come across something very different and just reignite your passion for the profession in a different way. And as you are talking about the different specialty members of your team that basically you have helped to create this new specialized transport for these maternal patients, who are very high risk. As someone who has not been in the flight or transport field, my background is emergency department. What advice would you give to a nurse who might be at that place where like, man, that sounds really interesting, but how do I go from where I am to there? Uh,
2: There's so many things they can do to decide if it's right for them. Most programs offer ride-alongs. So you can go in bed with a team and really see what they do, which I think is important because things that you don't always think about, like motion sickness, may slow your roll a little bit. That may not be the right match for you. They'll talk to you about how the hours can be long and what you see in the field all by yourself with your team can be scary. By the same token, it is so gratifying as a healthcare professional to have that excellence in your practice to have that autonomy. I think anyone who's looking at flight nursing has to at least tip their toe in critical care medicine. There's a lot of drips that we do. There's a lot of high level things. Like in our own program, we can do pretty much anything but um, surgery. We do ECMO. We do really tiny neos. We do all the vents. It's just it's very helpful to have that background. That is not the case with all flight programs. So that's why you're gonna reach out to your local flight program and find out. A lot of them, it's more emergency medicine. So that background in ED is exactly what you need. It just depends on the program. And then I, I would remind them, it is not without risk. You know, one of the first things, um, we do with a new hire is sit them down with our team and fill out life insurance policies that are in addition to what they have as a regular floor nurse at Children's Mercy, because it is not without risks. We get their next of kin information. Um, I think people have to be very transparent about the fact that it is a high profile, exciting job, but you you have to have a huge focus on safety all the time. You can't let that guard down. So There's so much to say about it. And I encourage people to reach out because I think most people who work in flight medicine are just like me. They're like, oh, I want to talk to you about it. Great, have a seat, Let's, let's chat.
0: You'd mentioned previously that local EMS doesn't like to transport some of these patients and <clears throat> having worked for a local EMS company for a while, I can tell you that's true. Uh, we did not like to, and there was a lot of comments made about, you know, we don't deliver babies in the back of an ambulance. We, uh, and even a lot of EDs will say the same thing. They say, we don't deliver babies in the ED. They have to go to, they have to go to labor and delivery, and which, you know, obviously, um, some things are preferred, but some things are not always the reality. And so, for ED nurses that may be listening, or transport providers that these situations do arise, and, and there is no choice but to be ready for the imminent delivery. What kind of tips and tricks would you give these people from your experience? And I know, you know, Holly had mentioned that you'll be speaking at an upcoming conference for BCEN, and so you certainly don't have to give away any of those uh, <laughs> lecture points, but any quick tips or any like educational gaps that you see that you would just love to share some some tips with the listeners
2: absolutely um i think i usually start especially with ems in saying delivering a baby in the back of an ambulance or in your you know ed very often is the least of your problems delivery itself is If it's happening quickly and you can't get her moved or it's happening, you know, on the way to the hospital, chances are she's going to take care of that herself and you just need to put on your catcher's mitt. You know, Um, there are so many other things that can happen with maternal patients that we tend to overlook. Um, The maternal patient is basically a compensatory machine because she has this parasite that she's growing her entire CV system is regulated to compensate, to protect that kind of center core until it can't anymore. And there's a lot of changes that we see in these patients that are very subtle, that are missed all the time. There's no one harder to impress with blood pressures than ED staff and EMS. Like they're not impressed when someone comes in with a 160 over 90. But for the maternal patient, where all the changes that she's had in her circulatory system mean that her baseline is 90 over 50, is a little more concerning. But you don't know that because it's not your specialty. So what tips would I have? You can do simulations on delivery all the time. And if you don't have a delivery service in your hospital, you, know, you can call a, a maternal transport if they're, if they're nearby. EMS also sims on this. Again, I... I worry less about that. We see fewer complications with that. What I would recommend is even though OB isn't your jam and I get it, there's a lot of CEs out there um, that are available to, that talk about hypertensive emergencies of the obstetric patient, postpartum complications. These are things that you may see. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate of any industrialized country by a lot, not by a little, like we're, winning that crummy race um, and part of the problem that we see is that we're not recognizing uh, when a mom is in trouble whether it is prenatally in delivery postnatally about one-third of maternal deaths occur during the delivery period or shortly thereafter another third happen earlier in the pregnancy and another third happen in the year following the pregnancy and that's the one that i think we can do much much better on we don't routinely screen women who are of childbearing age uh, in the ED if she's had a pregnancy in the last 12 months. A simple question, are you now or have you been pregnant in the last 12 months, can be a game changer. If we're asking these questions, if she screens positive, we've got a red flag. We're consulting OB. um, We're looking more closely at those vital signs we see to say, okay, is this It doesn't excite me as a normal patient, a normal adult patient. Should I be more concerned if this patient has been pregnant recently? The answer is yes. We do want to pay more attention to that. Here in Kansas, we discovered, I'm on the Kansas Maternal Mortality Review Board, and when we looked at our data, we discovered that three quarters of the moms who had died had at some point in their pregnancy contact with EMS or ED. It doesn't mean that they caused it, but it means that there was an opportunity that we possibly missed. Uh, I worked with our chair of emergency medicine here in Kansas and was able to get them to add that pregnancy screening question that I just uh, talked about earlier, the have you been pregnant in the last 12 months? And we added that to their required documentation. So now EMS is screening. And then we're teaching them to mention it when they get to the ED in the hopes that the ED will go, okay, I've heard about this. EMS is easier, I think. They're very aware of what they don't know with OB. Their annual education tends to be someone coming in and showing them how to deliver a baby. And that's kind of it. Maybe talking about preeclampsia a little bit. ED is tougher. They are a little more resistant, I've noticed, to my efforts in education Um, because they feel like they've got it. They've got it. They know what they're looking for. And based on the data we're seeing coming out of the statewide maternal mortality review boards is that maybe they don't. Maybe there's a little bit more that we can learn and do together.
0: You brought up a number of good points. And, you know, you talk about the the maternal mortality review board. And um, for a number of years, I also sat on the infant child death review board in, in my region, which in a way plays into that maternal review board as well. And um, I can tell you that where I live, we're also not winning that race that you talked about either. However, there's been a lot of conversation lately uh, over the past few years through ACOG and through new protocols and new formulas that they've put out there, pathways, I guess they call them maybe, on how to improve this problem that we have across the United States. And And I believe that their recommendation is any blood pressure 140 over 90. Uh, or higher, that we treat it with specific medications. And so they've done a lot and they've pushed a lot. And in response to that, I've seen, we've, we've had more education about maternal hypertension, even postpartum, Uh, but ours is more like six weeks. And you mentioned 12 months. Um, So can you differentiate maybe some of like why you're looking so far out um, past that pregnancy of, of up to 12 months? And then on the other side to that is what, Have you seen that has been a positive way to change this other than the education that we're trying to get out there? Is that the only thing or is there something more we can be doing to get people less resistant and more apt to try to make changes even within the community or within the the, uh, healthcare realms?
2: So all of the statewide maternal mortality review boards look at 12 months. Now, those first six weeks is when you're more likely to see those acute illnesses that could cause mortality. The reason we look at the 12 months is because there's still a large number of women who are dying, but it's from more chronic uh, conditions, be that cardiac conditions that worsen postpartum. uh, We see a major problem with opioids and women are able to get treatment and support for addiction during pregnancy uh, under Medicare. It goes away at six weeks. It doesn't wean out. It goes away. And almost half of the women who are delivering in in our country are on Medicare and Medicaid. So if they have an addiction, they're supported until six weeks and then they're cut off. That's a problem. And then we start seeing that increase in uh, addiction-related deaths. And then postpartum depression, of course, um, which is very rarely recognized as anything other than the baby blues, but continues past that six-week period and worsens, uh, especially without treatment. Women are really loath to talk about that. It still has a stigma. So we look at maternal deaths from suicide and um, other mental illness type things. So when you see the reports on maternal mortality globally, and both in the United States, they are looking at that 12 month period, which is why we need to be kind of on our game. As far as what I'm seeing that's encouraging, there are some great resources out there, very simple, Uh, that we're giving to both providers and to patients. You know, we're sending them home with great graphics that say, call your doctor if you see this, call 911 if you see this. We're better informing our patients, and we're better informing the providers who might encounter them. I spend a lot of time doing outreach education with uh, EMS, fire stations, EDs. And I think people are, are getting the message. They're starting to hear it. It doesn't make them fear pregnant patients less, but it's a healthy fear. I think um, we're really starting to do more than just say, nope, not in my emergency department, um, which is good, which is ext- what we want to see.
0: I know like a lot of these, a lot of this push, at least in my experience has been just over the past few years. And, and I know data takes a little while sometimes, but have you seen any kind of turning of the tide yet? Or are we still a little too early into this or what are your thoughts on that?
2: we're a little too early. There are some states that have had maternal mortality review boards for decades. Iowa is one, interestingly. Most of us have just gotten on board the last few years. There's some states that are still trying to put it together. I'm familiar with the data coming out of Kansas and Missouri, and it it's pretty similar. Uh, Missouri has one of the worst maternal mortality rates in the country. Fortunately, I think that's getting some attention. And then obviously, anytime you talk about maternal mortality, you have to talk about um, racial bias. Black women are at much greater risk of dying from pregnancy-related complications uh, than anyone else except for Indigenous women. It's very clear that we're failing on that side of taking care of of our pregnant moms. It should not be dangerous to be pregnant just because you are a black person or an indigenous person. So that's the other thing I talk about a lot to um, my community partners is you really have to assume that there's bias there and then treat accordingly. Um, I don't want anyone to be disregarded coming in with pregnancy complaints, but what we're seeing anecdotally is that how we treat, how we document, how we, um, assess pain is different for women of color than it is for other women. First is awareness and ownership. And then we got to fix that.
0: It's really eye-opening, and, and I think if somebody has an opportunity to be involved with um, either a local or a statewide review committee like that, it really, it lights a fire underneath you to want to do something more to help your community and help change the tide and, and do something. So thank you for sharing all that information with us.
2: Well, and I appreciate you saying that because maternal mortality review boards are made up of a lot of obstetric people and then some social workers, maybe some law enforcement, but we need more emergency physicians and nurses on those boards because you're seeing it in your EDs and we need your perspective. You know, we know that Things are being missed in the ED, but we don't know why. And there's likely perspective that you can give us that will help us come up with a better solution. So uh, that's, if I had another tip, it's that. If this is something that is uh, important to you that you could be passionate about, I guarantee your state has one of these reach out and see if uh, there's a place on the committee that you can attend and be on because your voice is important in this.
1: Heather, I appreciate the invitation to engage in what you are currently doing and what as a nurse, I think one of my guiding principles is that I want to help and I don't want to hurt my patients. And so to know that there are indeed gaps in care that are happening for people, pregnant women should receive the care that they so rightly deserve. And so to know that those gaps exist, to have the ability to be part of the solution or at least in recognizing that there is a problem, um, and that we can do something to make it better, that there that there are certainly changes that can be enacted on our part as nurses, but overall, just in healthcare, your lead in was really perfect, because you speak a lot on the topic of communication, um, constructive conflict and eliminating healthcare silos that really ties into sometimes we don't know that there's a problem. So we don't realize that (laughs) we need to do anything to solve it. And it's because it seems outside of what we're doing or the recognition of the problem is outside of what is being communicated to our department, to our organization. And so it's almost an ignorance in a way to an issue, but it's because we are, we're in our own little We're in our own little silo. And so you speak to this. Um, What are some key takeaways or advice that you could give?
2: It's a great question. And I think what's most important is recognizing, first of all, that bringing this to light is not criticizing any emergency medicine provider. It's saying, this is what we're discovering, and we want to help you identify. We're not asking you to become obstetric experts. Uh, but there are some fairly simple things you can look for. And then you can alert whoever needs to know some pretty simple medications that can be given to really make inroads in the reduction of moms dying. So I think when I, as an obstetric um, expert, I'm talking to emergency teams, EMS squads, I, I need to recognize that anytime you bring up something that they're not familiar with, there's human nature, you get a little defensive. Um, And I think that's why I titled my talk the way I did. We don't do that here, right? It's normal to be defensive. And I think the best thing healthcare professionals can do is use their words. We do not talk enough about... Constructive communication in healthcare. We are doing a better job of teaching our students about quality initiatives and improvements, um, clinical skill acquisition, but the most important tool in their tool belt is communication. Uh, the Institute of Medicine puts out the Future of Nursing report every 10 years, both 2010, 2020. The number one cause for patient error is a breakdown of communication between healthcare professionals. So I think going in to talk to each other about that is kind of laying it all on the table and saying, I know this is uncomfortable. I'm not saying you're doing everything wrong. I'm saying there's ways you can help us reduce these deaths acknowledging, you know, the fear or discomfort that goes along with taking care of patients that are very much not your specialty. We get into a place where we feel good and confident about the patients that we take care of. And we really don't want anything to come in and mess with that confidence because we worked hard for it. So I think I preach and preach to people, clarify what you don't know and speak your feelings. If this feels uncomfortable, say so. If you're feeling defensive, say so. And I'm going to do the same. It sounds simple. It's uh, easier in theory than in practice. But I work with a lot of teams on improving that dynamic, working, you know, across disciplines in other teams and kind of opening that door to your silo and, and uh, meeting someone in the middle of the farmyard, right? We're, we're going to get together and have these discussions that result in a high-quality decision. Um I realize that doesn't give you any one, two, three tips for how to communicate better. That's a big topic. And again, another topic I could talk about for far longer than anyone wants to hear me speak.
0: Well, I doubt that. I think we can probably have a poll and see who wants to hear Heather speak speak (laughs) longer. We'd probably have quite a few. Uh, I think you have some great insight and you clearly are are one that inspires a lot of other people and works with a lot of other people to improve their practice, both clinically and professionally. And we always like to ask people this question of who has inspired you. So whether it's a patient, whether it's a coworker, family member, has there been any particular person throughout the years that's really made an impact on your career?
2: Early in my career. I had a very patient very kind boss and I am kind of a a bull in the china closet right I just forge ahead very confident whatever I'm going to do super decisive sometimes not a great thing especially not for new nurse and um, she took me aside and she I felt like she should just you know take on every issue that came her way. And she was very calm and and intentional about any conflict that she engaged in. And she sat me down, she was coaching me. I had a special chair in her office with my name on it basically. And she said, Heather, if I could get you to temper your passion with diplomacy, you could go anywhere and do anything in nursing. And that one comment changed the trajectory of my career. And I watched what she did and how she spoke to people, how she made them feel. And I've really tried to model myself after that. I fail um, often because that's not necessarily my personality, but it gave me a model uh, to aspire to as far as how to treat the people I'm working with so that they hear what I'm saying and not how I'm saying it.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I've worked with similar people and I've thought, you know, if we could just channel the passion in the right direction, this would be the best, best nurse in the department. But if it's in the wrong direction, watch out.
2: Those high performers with a communication problem. Yes. Very familiar with them. <laughs> I was one.
1: I'm going to be honest, Heather. I just like self-identified with you. So <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm, I get I'm it girl.
2: That, we sisters.
1: <laughs> I'm glad that Michael um, didn't, he hasn't like got on and been truth. But um, yes, that is definitely something that I have also had to work at and continue to have to work at. Sometimes my, my passion gets ahead of my diplomacy. So thank you for that kind reminder. It's so interesting to me that there are just these moments when people give you what seems like relatively simple feedback. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's, you know, a couple of sentences, but that it really just, it hits you exactly how you, how you need it said from someone who wants you to grow and who wants you to be the best version of yourself. And so it hits you and then you think about it and you process through it and you realize like, man, they're right. That moment, It's small in the amount of time that it took and, you know, even the amount of words. And yet to this day, you remember that moment to this day, it continues to help guide you and what you're doing um, and how you are just teaching and educating and reaching people that you would not have been able to do that had you not have embraced that feedback and and grown. So I love hearing moments um, from other, you know, nurses and people in healthcare Because again, it's a small moment. It's probably a small moment to that person. You know, she may not.
2: We talk about that, and she's like, "I barely remember that." And when (laughs) I told her I was doing talks on, you know, good communication, she laughed and laughed and said, "Well, I wouldn't have predicted that. I had high hopes for you, but I didn't see that coming." Yeah, for her, it was just a moment. For me, it was huge,
1: huge. Yeah, that is really a theme that I'm that I'm hearing through these different podcast interviews that we've gotten to do is that. It was, a, it might not have been this big, huge thing to that person who said it to you or that, or that mo, that time or that circumstance that it, it may not have been even a, almost a blip on their radar, but the impact was felt by you and it's, and it's made all the difference. And so thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. I am actually going to change the direction a little bit. We are going to do some just rapid fire questions. It really focuses on your favorites. Which let us get to know you a little bit more as a person, honestly, Um, because as a professional, we've gotten to hear about some of the amazing things that you are doing. And now let's just get to know you a little bit more as Heather. What would you be doing if you were not in your current role? So if you could just do any job. I think, okay, well, if I couldn't do nursing, I think it would be real estate
2: because I stock Zillow and look at the <laughs> insides of people's houses. And I think I would like to do that, but none of the paperwork. So if there's a job where I can just show houses, it would be that. If it were in nursing, you know, we have 14 ambulances in our fleet and I've said, I just want to take an old one and make it one of those IV infusion food stations where you can give people a boost, an IV boost, and then just park it outside the frat houses after a big game or something. I would make them then. It'd be super fun. I love starting IVs. So that would be my retirement plan for nursing. And otherwise, I guess I'm going to sell houses.
1: I'm not going to lie. I like to watch those real estate reality shows. And when they go in and they like show the house and I realized that like the people on the shows probably do not do any paperwork, (laughs) nor do they actually probably ever sell a house because now they're just too important to do that. So really- you could be a reality star of a real estate, and then you could just show the houses, and then that way you won't have to do any of the paperwork. Or, you know, I mean,
2: exactly. I want to be the Vanna White of real estate, <laughs> point things out,
1: and then move on. <laughs> I love that. I would watch your show. Okay, we are gonna move on to some more of your favorites. And again, for each one of these topics, it can be kind of like all time or it can be current. What is your favorite book? It is Jane Eyre.
2: Um, I will say
1: I was a very precocious reader.
2: It's still my favorite thing to do. And my mom caught me reading her Harlequin romances when I was like eight years old. And so she made a deal with me and said, I'll let you read whatever you want, but I get to pick every other book. So for every Stephen King or you know <laughs> Harlequin, she would pick out a classic um, Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, Fahrenheit 451. And so I very early on fell in love with Jane Eyre and it stayed my favorite my whole life. So I'm grateful to my mom for that.
1: That is not often the one that people will fall on as far as like one of the classics, but I do love the imagery and just, it's a little bit of a darker one, right? Yeah. But it's gothic, yeah. yeah. It's a really it's got some redemptive arcs in there that you just don't really see coming. So, yeah. Great, great recommendation. I, I probably should have said like some kind of self help
2: book, but <laughs> beyond honest, no, that, that's not it. It's a gothic yeah. romance. <laughs> no, no, I love that. Favorite TV show for us? It's Ted Lasso, all the way. Jason Stakus is a hometown boy. Um, and so we love that show, we love how good it makes us feel. Um, and secondly, is Schitt's Creek that got us through the pandemic. We love Schitt's Creek.
1: I could not agree with you more about your second recommendation. I really, and honestly, when I think back on 2020, obviously there's, there's some, there's some low points, um, mm-hmm. and there are going to be some forever lasting memories, but one of them is the amount of laughter that was able to come out of a 23 to 27 minute show. Mm-hmm. Regardless of the episode, there was always just a moment where I would either laugh or cry or have some type of like emotional moment. And I'd be like, okay, I'm good for the next shift at work now. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll go back to the COVID. Um, and so yes, honestly, probably should write into them, um, and say, thank you for getting us through the pandemic Signed, seriously all ER nurses ever who watched your show. So I feel like we all discovered it during the pandemic and all fell in love with it. Absolutely. Favorite musical artist.
2: So listen, there's no way I can pick a single song, but I will say, and everyone makes fun of me for it. I'm a total Barry Manilow fan. I love him so much. I grew up with his music and I will, you know, blast Copa Cabana right out of my stereo. So if you want to know anything about me, be aware that my playlist is um, eclectic and I really love Barry Manilow.
1: (laughs) I mean, he, he was the voice of a generation and he continues to Just, he, he brings out a depth, I think that is missing from a lot of current music. So Uh, I, yeah,
2: I can listen to him and my husband has more normal music taste and he just shakes his head. (laughs) does not understand that at all, but there you go.
1: That's what it is. What (laughs) is your comfort food or a meal that you really enjoy? Well, I'm Southern, so
2: food is a hot topic for me, but I think more than anything, I love just that going home and having my mom's fried chicken and mashed potatoes and okra and greens and you know having moved from the south when I was uh, 16 it very much feels like I'm going home and for us food is more than just food especially in the south unfortunately because I have a somewhat unhealthy relationship with it but
1: for me it's that classic southern meal there is an absolute homecoming with food and it people who are maybe not from the south or haven't spent any time down here first off i recommend that you come to the south um and when you do make sure that you eat a lot and bring your <laughs> elastic pants because yeah. you're going to need them but it really is just that food is such a centerpiece of family unit that conversation happening around food and it is it, you, you do develop a very um dynamic relationship with food, um, when it is such an intricate part of just home and family time and literally everything that we do. I feel like there's always some like food attributed Mm -hmm. to it. Like, Oh, we're going to have people over. Let's (laughs) just make a quick casserole or there's always, there's always food. Well, and
2: they know as a manager, the way that I encourage my team's I feed them, right? It's three o'clock. We're understaffed. Everyone's tense. I'm going to throw a couple bags of uh, microwave popcorn in the microwave. I'm going to put some chocolate covered raisins in there and we're going to have a little popcorn party. It's nothing. It takes no time. Very little money, but people respond to food. They just do.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mayor, I give later. them chips and salsa every day. I would have no turnover. <laughs> Everyone would <laughs> be happy. It's really what I need to be doing. I think.
1: <laughs> I'm in chips and salsa. You had me, you had me right there exactly.
0: Yeah. Where, where can we go to put in our application for this? <laughs>
1: I'll send you the link. I'll let you know. <laughs> like a bottom, the bottomless chips and salsa. I mean, that's, that's our signing key. bonus.
2: Yeah, exactly. We've solved the problem of staffing in the United States right
1: there. Retention, nurse retention <laughs> done. Solved <laughs> right here on this podcast. All right. Well, do you have any other hobbies or interests kind of outside of nursing? Um. So like I said, I read a lot and um,
2: my husband is more active. He's more social. I'm kind of an introvert, and what we've discovered is I love to read in hammocks, so now we'll go places out in nature, which I tend to avoid, and he'll bring a hammock, and then I'll be happy to be there, still have my book, so I like to explore that. I love, love to travel. Um, Our last big trip was Scotland, and it was absolutely amazing. And we travel domestically too. And I just feel very strongly that the best money you spend is on experiences. That's really our focus is travel much to our money managers dismay, but there you go.
1: I will say that one of the best pieces of encouragement that I got is once I got out of high school and I was in college and you know, when you're a college student, you don't really have a lot of money, but it was, if you can travel while you're in school and do it, you know, relatively on the cheap. I mean, you're certainly not saying it hotel, <laughs> nice places, but if you can travel, if you can do that while you're kind of figuring out all of the other things that it will help you to gain perspective with which you will use to make those other big decisions. And it was some of the, the best encouragement that I got. And I've been You know, just blessed to be able to travel to some very different places um, outside of the US. And it has helped me gain perspective that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And so I definitely understand that when it really comes down to it, you know, you can you can have all the things, but if you don't have the experiences and the the travel education that you gain when you're going outside of the US and seeing how different life can be in different places and just different approaches and things that you can kind of gain um, insight. I'm like, if you haven't done that yet, you really should like it. It's worth, it's worth the money. I mean, it's not cheap, but it certainly is. You almost can't put a price tag on it, even though there is a price tag associated with it. So I
2: couldn't agree more. I think it's great advice that you received and that you're giving now. That's great.
1: If our audience wants to follow you online, because they may have some more follow-up questions and just want to ask you for some you know, other good insight, because honestly, all of your favorites, I feel like you just you have some great advice and great perspective. So what um, social media platforms could they follow you on? And they can find me on Facebook. My social media or my uh, Facebook profile is public. Uh,
2: they can certainly message me. Um, I don't, You're welcome to share my work email if they have questions about flight nursing and that type of thing. I'm very
1: comfortable with that. We will have that posted up for follow-up. If our audience wants to follow you online, we'll have some of that listed on our Podbean bio for you. So thank you for that.
2: Well, thank you. I really look forward to uh, meeting some of your members in May and getting to see you guys face-to-face instead of over a screen.
0: Yeah, we're looking forward to having you too. And uh, I I appreciate you being on the podcast and thank you for sharing the information, not just about maternal health, but also about, you know, some of the logistical considerations for that, some of the communication things. Uh, It's been a really great conversation. It's been really nice to have you. And I'm looking forward to meeting you in person too and, and hearing your presentation.
2: Well, thank you.
1: I want to take this time to thank Heather for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you, Heather, for sharing your knowledge, your time, your passion with us. We're looking forward to that face-to-face time with you at Learn Live in Dallas, Texas on May 15th through the 17th of 2023. To see the attendee agenda, get registered to join us. You can go to bcn.org backslash bcn learn live. You do not want to miss it. And to all of our listeners, we hope you will stay tuned as we continue with BCN and Friends and bring you new, meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I'm Holly Briggs, here with Michael Dexter, and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you're doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, we are out.